Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. COVID-19 has transformed the welfare state as millions more people have become dependent on it and a huge mountain of public debt has been generated. The COVID welfare state looks like one of the great policy success stories of the period of the pandemic, but it remains unclear what will happen as this support is withdrawn, beginning with the end of furlough and the £20 universal credit uplift. In his new book, The Next Welfare State, UK Welfare After COVID-19, Chris Pearson argues that once the pandemic has passed and a new normal has been established, we should be left with all the old problems that have dogged the welfare state for the past 50 years. This includes a perennial disappointment that the welfare state has not been an effective strategy for equality. Chris argues that it can't be. If we care about equality or just the rising tide of social inequality, we need to look elsewhere. That search starts with asking the question, who owns? We're here to talk about current policy, the mistakes of the past and ways in which society could be transformed in order to ensure collective well-being. Hello, Chris. Hi, Jess. Thank you for speaking to me today. Well, thank you for reading the book and coming along. And oh, asking me to talk absolute to you. pleasure. Absolute <laughs> pleasure. Um, as I said in the intro, a key theme of the book is the impossibility of social change through the welfare state. It's not a strategy for equality. In the book, you explain how it's a way of achieving redistribution of wealth and moderating some inequalities, but will never make things equal. This can really change the way I think about the welfare state. So please, can you talk us through this? Okay, well, let me begin by saying no one outside the social policy community really talks about the welfare state anymore. Uh, the neoliberals never managed to get rid of the welfare state as they'd hoped to, but they did succeed in making it a dirty word, even for those on the left. So everybody now talks about making work pay as if that's what the welfare state is for. But when I was growing up in the 1960s and 1970s, the welfare state was the shorthand term for the Labour Party's programme for gradual but profound social change. And that dated back through the Attlee government to the pre-war writings of R.H. Tawney and his idea of a strategy of equality. Under that, Labour would use the dynamics of tax and spend plus the provision of quality public services to achieve a wholesale reduction in inequality. So the welfare state did, and it does reduce inequality. Taxation is progressive. It provides crucial public services and it moderates poverty, but it is not a mechanism for achieving equality. So what happened to make the original vision of the welfare state go wrong? Uh, Reading your book, it feels like it was to do with that moment where Crosland argued that, yeah, tax and legislation can create real social change. But at that time, he ignored the question of who owns, and that feels like a significant turning point. So is this what led to our focus on income inequality rather than wealth inequality? And why is this so significant? Well, again, I'm not so sure that the welfare state went so horribly wrong. And if we want to be critical, we need always to keep in mind uh, the successes of the welfare state. Otherwise, we just give ammunition 
ammunition to its opponents, uh, who coincidentally have largely failed in their ambition to roll back the state. The mistake for which Tony Crossland is either the villain in chief or a scapegoat was to believe that an extension of the welfare state along the lines Labour had followed after 1945 could yield profound social change and that therefore Labour could stop worrying about who owned everything. The traditional concern of earlier socialists, both revolutionaries and reformers. That was a tragic mistake. Who owns has always mattered and changing it remains the necessary basis of any deep-seated reform. Tawney knew this and he said this, but those who came after him forgot it. At least in part because the electoral politics of trying to change who owns are so hard to deliver. Wealth has always mattered more than income and now it matters more than ever. And anyone who wants to do things with tax and spend, even if that is only to maintain decent pension incomes or pay for social care, will have to look to tax wealth rather than just income. So why does wealth matter more than income? It's kind of an obvious question, but you explain it quite well in the book. Well, the reason that you have to think about wealth rather than income is primarily that that's where most of the resource is based. So if you want to get at the resources which can pay for things, then you have to tax wealth rather than just income. Wealth is also much more unequally distributed than income. So if you're concerned with getting at the people who have great chunks of resource, you won't get that through going at incomes. You have to go for wealth. And if, as we do, you primarily tax income, then you're really making all of the burden fall upon people who are working, not people who own assets. So the um, recent taxation of working people's incomes through national insurance um, really exemplifies this focus on income um, rather than wealth as a way of paying for welfare. So, I mean, do you think this reflects your arguments? Well, to be fair to Boris Johnson, he's the first prime minister in a generation to actually do something about the costs of social care rather than just talk about it. And those costs are inevitably going to rise in the next 10 to 20 years. And he has recognised that you need to do something to pay for it. But I doubt that national insurance is really the best way to do that. And it does reflect a continuing focus on incomes rather than wealth. I mean, national insurance is a tax which is progressive, just, but much less so than income tax. And it has a generational impact and component. It place, places the costs above all on a younger working age population, which is unlikely to have the same assets and pension incomes in retirement that the current generation of older people do. So we cannot go on paying more and more for the costs of welfare, which mostly provide income and services to older people through the taxation of incomes. We have to start finding effective ways of taxing wealth. And that means making some difficult and maybe unpopular choices about inheritance and housing, 
in which trillions of pounds of our national wealth are tied up. So however we actually decide to pay for welfare, the need for a new direction is becoming ever more necessary because the cost of welfare is increasing due to things like our aging population and climate change. Um, you explain this really well in the book and highlight a few key factors. Could you speak a bit about those? Yeah, okay. Um, as I said before, it's really important to recognise that the welfare state is a success story and just as important to recognise that it's not going away. Everyone seems to think that the neoliberals won the battle of ideas in the 1970s and 1980s, but one of the new right's key ambitions, shrinking the state, just has not happened and it will not happen. The experience in the hardship of austerity after 2010 was real enough, but it failed in its key ambition of debt reduction and it was blown away in the first few months of the pandemic. So there will be a welfare state there into the future. And in the book, I identify three big challenges which are coming down the line. The first of those is aging and the costs associated with aging, which I think everyone's now pretty familiar with. But the two others, which I think are also important. The first of those is the changing nature of work. We know that the character of work is changing. Work becomes uh, more intermittent. There's a question about the inadequacy of wages. We know that work-based or employment-based pensions have been disappearing over the last 10 years. And then there are the very uncertain consequences of automation and what that will actually do to the way our workforce looks. And work and welfare have always been very closely interrelated. And these changes in the character of work and people's working lives are going to be enormously consequential. And in the last 25 years, we've pushed employment-based social security to its limits, and it isn't really working. Consider, for example, the huge numbers of people who are both working and poor. Um, the other, even bigger issue, I guess, uh, a more, still more fundamental challenge is the future of the economy and of the welfare state under climate change. Um, historically, the welfare state has been paid for by economic growth and the difficult political choices associated with welfare have been finessed by economic growth. But it's not clear that we can go on having economic growth doing that work in the ways that we have. And we know that the products of this economy are increasingly unevenly divided. So if we have fewer resources and maybe fewer well-paid lifetime jobs, then we have to think much more seriously about how we divide up our wealth in ways that ensure that there is at least enough for everyone. So given this increasing cost and the fact that um, taxing income perpetuates inequality, should we be introducing, well, Obviously, we should be introducing a wealth tax, inheritance taxes, land taxes, and capital gains taxes. Would this be a strategy of equality? 
would this make things more equal? Well, there are, there are a number of policy recommendations out there. Um, most prominent, and now for quite a long time, has been the call for a, a universal basic income. Um, enormously popular in large sections of the social policy community and unpopular with others. It's certainly the one that's attracted the most political attention. But as everyone knows, it's also made limited headway so far. Um, an important variant on that is the idea of a one-off capital grant given to everyone on their entry to adulthood, which is an idea that goes back to Tom Paine and is now popular with Tom Piketty. And I guess that UBI is likely to be a part of any solution and it is seen as being um, environmentally friendly and also post-employment society friendly. But even if that's part of the solution, it's obviously not all of it. And we have also to reform our taxation regime so that it more effectively targets wealth rather than income. There are a number of policy possibilities there and you've, you've listed some of them, wealth tax, tax on inheritance, land value taxation, which every economist, every good economist <laughs> since Adam Smith seems to think was a good idea, but everyone else seems to think is, is madness. Um, so there are a number of options uh, out there in which we actually deploy uh, would really depend on time and, and circumstance, but there are options for taxing wealth uh, rather than income. And these, uh, the really important thing about those is they have to be made to stick and to work. Um, but the political challenge of getting those kind of taxes over the line is formidable. Yes, you kind of end the book on that slightly depressing note, uh, it, which does lead me to my final question, actually. Um, so think going back to the introduction here and the themes of the book that we've discussed, uh, the heart of your argument is this idea that having a welfare state is good, but it will never make things equal, however we fund it. So to really transform society, we need a more radical solution that goes beyond all this. Um, in a ideal world where these kinds of policy decisions might get made, what would your alternative vision of the future look like? Okay, I think there are possibly two separate questions here, and certainly I have two answers. The first is to repeat really that the welfare state cannot constitute in itself a strategy of equality. Um, but in doing the job of underwriting social provision, it can moderate inequality and it should marginalize poverty. So um, if one's critical of the limitations of the welfare state, it's absolutely central to say at the same time that it has done and continues to do uh, important work of redistribution and also the provision of, of public services, which is irreplaceable. It's important to defend that against the people who want to get rid of it. Uh, but secondly, if as a political community, we really care about equality, we would have to do more, much more. And above all, we'd have to find ways 
of actually redistributing wealth. And we would need a tax regime and ownership structures that made this possible. And I suppose I'm not sure that we are a political community that wills such a change. So for example, we should be ashamed to live in a society in which nearly a third of children are living in poverty and where that number has increased by roughly 500,000 in the past decade. But I'm not sure that we are. So I don't think really that we lack potential solutions. We would have to try them out, but there are solutions out there. It's not that we don't know, I think, what we need uh, to do. And the key component in that, I think, the key in doing something about change is to go back to that question of who owns and what are we going to do about it. But the real struggle is not the idea. The real struggle, I think, is getting the politics to work. And once you get to questions of ownership, that's where the politics gets really tough. That's a depressing note to finish on. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? It is hard to fathom right, is, a way I'm, to a more equal future. Yes, I'm afraid it, it is true. And um, the... A, a part of the changes that you know, doing the book as I as I did it, and looking back kind of historically, um, the context in which people were thinking, say people around the Labour Party were thinking about this in the fifties and sixties, were wholly different because the political community they represented was so different. It was organised labour. It was organised labour. So you mean and like trade isn't. unions and that kind of thing? Trade unions and also. Yes, trade unions and membership of the Labour Party, and it, it was a force, you know, organised labour was a counterbalance to kind of whatever you call it, employers' interests or owners or whatever. And that, that's that been disassembled yeah. <laughs> substantially. Uh, and so that makes the business of trying to attain change much, much more difficult to effect. Oh, how can I think of a positive note to end it on? There isn't one, is there, really? That's <laughs> depressing. Well, I think... Um, uh, Give us some hope. <laughs> oh, God, no, I'm not sure I can... I, I'm not sure I can... Well, OK, there are a couple of things, aren't there? I mean, one is that um, there is there is a gradual generational change. This is true. And yeah. so, actually... Though they always say, well, the pensioners vote Tory, right? Because they've got the triple lock and they've got those things. Yeah. You know, the pensioners are not going to be voting forever. Yeah. And, you know, the people who are now in their 20s and 30s don't have the same interests as people who are in their 60s and 70s now. They mm. are the people who really need this change because they can't afford to buy their homes. You know, that you know, there's a generation that bought homes and saw them hugely escalate in value. That just isn't going to happen again. You made an interesting the, point in the book as well about how inheritance comes, because everyone's living longer, inheritance comes in when people are 50, yeah. 60. So yeah. it doesn't actually help yeah. with that process either. Yeah. But it's, it. yes, that's right. It comes much later. I mean, people who, you know, people who have lots of money have always been very skillful at managing this. So they will make sure that the money gets through to their kids yeah. and buys them homes and all that kind of thing. 
but that's not going to be true of great swathe of the population who are not going to be homeowners and not going to have proper pensions no um they're going to have an interest in yeah. seeing that for example social care is properly paid for and they can't pay it because they don't have large enough incomes so that that will change across time and and you know who knows what those kind of bigger issues around changing employment and climate change are going to be but we we really aren't going to be able to go on <laughs> the same way no it might force we, the issue it, it could be yeah. just it could just be catastrophic but the world of work unemployment and and income is going to have it's going to change yeah because we don't have anywhere else to go we you know we can't go on you know we've we've finessed questions about wealth for the last 200 years by growing yeah fast yeah right? yeah and, and we're hitting the limits you can't go on avoiding questions about distribution forever by just making more no so maybe that's you know it's not uplifting in some ways but it does mean we're going to be forced to change yes yeah we will have to change what we do um and and um i i think we probably will you know i don't know what the outcomes in terms of wealth will be but we will we will have we won't have any choice but to ask those questions yeah i, I mean uh, in the book um I mean, when I was researching it, I mean, the consequences of changing your economy in the way that the kind of more green economists suggest are, are very radical indeed. Yeah? You, yeah. you can't do it just in, in the way that we have. You can't just, you know, go on holiday a bit less or drive an electric car or something. No. You have to change the way the whole thing is constructed and you have to change. You can't, people can't just rely on work for an income no they're not going to have lifetime jobs they're not going to have sufficient income so yeah that doesn't sound very upbeat does it but that's the best no well i can think of yeah change, change is possible isn't you it you could say I, you could say you know change is going to come it could be benign or not very benign but it is going to happen yeah and your book does a really great job i think of um outlining the history but also really it really explains well all those factors that are going to contribute to that change that was really helpful in yeah, that sense yeah 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 i just tried to say at the end look this is you know I, don't, I can't you know i can't pretend i think that it's very clear that the social forces that need to be there to do this change are there but i've just tried to say look this is what you need to do yeah. right? if, if we don't if we don't do this you know we're screwed the book's really useful in these discussions because it does highlight all these um, changes that are happening and kind of puts them together with a plan for the future. And then who knows what will happen as whether anyone's ever going to be in power who might put this plan into place. But all the ideas are there. So thank you, Chris, very much for speaking to me. Uh, Chris's book, The Next Welfare State, UK Welfare After COVID-19, is published by Policy Press. More information is available at policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.